1: So, set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm often asked what my favorite story is among all those I've ever told. And the truth is I really don't have a particular favorite. But if I had to name one of my top 10, the story Lost in the Mountains, which was podcast number 155, I recorded that about two years ago, that would definitely rank up there. Now if you're not familiar with that story, let me just tell you, it's the incredible true story of five-year-old Pamela Hollingworth, who got lost in the heavily wooded white mountains of New Hampshire back in September of 1941. When she got lost, she was totally unprepared for what she was about to face. It would get below freezing each night, it rained almost every single day, and all she had on were corduroy bib overalls, sneakers, and socks. That's it. In what would be the largest search and rescue mission ever up until that point in the state of New Hampshire, thousands of volunteers scoured the mountainous area in search of her. And with each passing day, the chance of her being found alive seemed to diminish greatly. In fact, most of the experts concluded that she could not have survived. Yet, miraculously, Pam would be found alive after eight days in the wilderness, and she had lost a significant amount of weight, she had extremely frostbitten feet, yet she would make a full and complete recovery. I should tell you I wrote that story while my wife and I were vacationing in a cabin about 20 minutes outside of Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. As a result, the internet, it was incredibly spotty, and I was only able to stay online for minutes at a time. And I had already determined that Pam and her parents had passed on, but I was unable in my brief spurts of internet access to determine what happened to her brother, Ted, who happened to be nine years old when the incident took place. Well, to my surprise, this past Valentine's Day, I received an email from Ted's daughter, Tori, And she told me that her father was indeed alive and well, and within minutes she had put me in touch with him. So as a special treat I thought it'd be interesting to have Ted not only tell his version of the story, but also to come on and let you know what happened to Pam after this incredible story faded from the headlines. So without further ado, let's take a listen to my interview with Ted Hollingworth as he takes us back into the woods. I am Steve Silberman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast.
0: Useless Information
1: So, Ted, thanks for joining me today. Uh, I thought we'd start by you just telling a little about yourself to my audience.
2: Okay, well, I started life uh, working with my father in the construction industry. So I became a field engineer after I was graduated from Dartmouth College. I went in the military uh, for my six-year obligation. I was in the 351st Missile Battalion, which is part of the Cold War, stationed in Cleveland, and uh, then began, because of my experiences in the military, I became a public speaker for my battalion in uh, the Cleveland and that area on North American defense. I began to get a taste for teaching, so when I went Back to civilian life, my father suddenly died. My life changed. So to make long story short, I decided to go back to Boston and go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. It was a toss-up between Harvard and uh, a PhD in history or a place called Emerson College and a master's degree in communication. And after about a 30-minute meeting with the chair of the Emerson department, I said, this is it. This is the guide. This is my thesis. Let's go. So I stayed with Emerson 54 years, wow. teaching a wide variety of courses and starting the internship programs, and in I think probably the country. And then um, I, w- I was teaching a lot of other places too. And Harvard picked me up and, uh, in the extension school to teach a course in management in a new program and kind of an MBA program. And I taught there 36 years. And worked with a lot of other colleges and then was recruited by the MITRE Corporation, which is a a think think tank, Mm -hmm. a spin-off of MIT. It's like RAND on the West Coast. It's a brain factory. It's 700 MIT grads and so forth. And uh, stayed there for about 45 years, Uh, 19 of those years. I worked every summer full-time and then part-time during the academic year and so forth. But I did stay doing training for them after that, but then focus on Harvard and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I used to travel about 60,000 miles a year. And I had a top secret clearance, which was great because I got to work for 17 years with the man who broke all the Nazi codes in World War II at Bletchley Park. Uh, Gordon Walshman, and we became extremely close friends up until he died and so forth. So I've been very fortunate. I've had a lot of really amazing things happen to me. I didn't create them; I just happen to be there at the right time.
1: Of course, we have spoken before, and uh, you're just giving a very brief overview of what you've done. It's just an incredible resume that you have. But uh, of course, the real reason we're here today is because your daughter contacted me, your daughter Tori. She contacted me. I actually checked this this morning. She contacted me on Valentine's Day and, uh, and mentioned... Uh, that I should get in touch with you uh, to talk a little bit about your sister's story. And uh, I recorded this podcast, uh, I guess, a little bit, probably about two years ago now. And it is one of the most popular stories I've done in recent years. So uh, uh, I'm just so happy you've come on to kind of tell your version of the story.
2: Well, it's a great, it's a great story, Steve, in itself. I and mean, I just happened to be the guy who was there and probably know more about it now. I think all of the rest of them are deceased. But it's a staggering story, and I'm always happy to talk about it because of the story that it is. And I think when you hear it in a more detailed way, you'll realize why I feel that way.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, of course, everything I did was from uh, the reporters, from newspaper accounts. So, uh, you know, you have a real insight into it. You know, the newspapers like to put a spin on things if they can. So I hope I was fairly accurate in what I wrote, but I'm curious to see uh, if there are mistakes I made or really to see what you can add to the story because uh, you, you know so much more than I can get from uh, those print resources. So anyway, so uh, why don't we start? Sure. I guess we should just set the scenario. This is September 28th of 1941, just a few months before Pearl Harbor's bomb. Yes. Um, so I wanted to take it from there.
2: First of all, It was very dry at that particular time in New Hampshire and in New England in general. And my father, my mother, my grandfather on my father's side, my grandmother on my mother's side and my sister and I, we got into the uh, family Chevy to take a drive up to the White Mountains to have a cookout. And uh, the White Lakes area as we got up there, because it was so dry, there was a fire hazard. So all of the public parks and all of the woods, you know, access to the woods and everything, they were, you know, for verboten. For you could not use any of them. They were, they were blocked off. Mm-hmm. So we kept on going and we came to a place called White Ledge Camping uh, Picnicking Area in Albany, New Hampshire, which is at the base of Middle Sister Mountain which led to Mount Shikarwa, So it's right in that North Conway area, but there's a brook running down beside it. And a sign saying, you can camp here, which meant you could have a fire. You could cook your your meal. So we we pulled in there. It was a small park. I would say probably maximum of maybe 35 other people there and so forth, some camping, some just stopping for a moment as we were there. Okay. Now you have to remember also another variable here, which is Pam and I lived in a very small country town called Dunstable, Massachusetts, with about 350 people, and our nearest neighbor was uh, uh, about a quarter of a mile away. Okay, so we were we were kids raised in the country.
1: Um, Wanted to just quickly uh, throw in, you know, because people listen from all over the world want you to say how far it is from Boston or something like
2: it's probably about 30 miles outside of Boston maybe 35 40 just below Nashua New Hampshire it was a very big town years ago but New Hampshire kept splitting it up into different smaller towns but again about 350 people our nearest neighbor about a quarter of a mile away which means we were alone as children so we were used to being alone, used to taking care of ourselves. Well, very well trained by our parents about how to deal with water, how to swim, you know, how to find your way home, all of these kinds of things. So uh, that I think was a very important variable as to as far as Pam's attitude when she was she was lost, and we were at this um, p- picnic place. And it was, there was a brook running right next to this called Hobbs Brook, which was draining Middle Sister, uh, Middle Sister Mountain up there at the time. Now, at the time, um, Pam had a little fancy bottle that she wanted to fill with water. So I went down to the brook where she wanted to fill it. And, you know, she was very independent, and very strong minded. She said she wanted to fill it, so she needed to walk up the brook a little bit. And we weren't afraid of it. The brook was very mild, very easy. And I said, okay, you can see our car up here. You can see it at the top of the bridge. I said, that's where you go because I'm going to go back. This is not unusual. She'd leave me when I'm down the brook, you know, back home or whatever. And so I went back and everybody was quiet. It was around noontime. They were napping or reading. And so my mother and father, voracious readers. So I sat down to read something. And suddenly my father looked up and he said, where's your sister? And I said, well, she's just down the brook. She's just filling the bottle. You don't go right down and get her. So I went down and I looked for her. She was gone. So I came back and said, she's gone, Dad. And what was amazing, within 10 minutes, there were 10 people looking for her. Okay. Within 30 minutes, there were 35 people looking for her. Everybody in that little campground was looking for her. Within 30 minutes, my father called the sheriff, the local sheriff, Taylor. And he called the Forest Service. He called the selectmen in North Conway. They called the fire department. They bring the fire alarms, you know, to call everybody to look. And within a matter of minutes, there were probably that evening, a total of at least 50 people looking for her.
1: Obviously, this is the days before cell phones. Yes. Uh, so, where where was the nearest phone for your dad to call?
2: It's about seven miles up the road. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it was an old building there, kind of musty, and it became kind of a rallying point. They ended up moving it to the town hall in Albany mm-hmm. because it, it was a it became a very big operation, a huge operation.
1: And and I guess we should mention that you were nine years old and your sister Pam was five.
2: I was nine years old. She was five. We both turned our ages uh, that June. And again, as I say, and it's very important. Both very secure in the woods, not afraid of anything. So it wasn't a fear thing. There was no any fear thing at all. Eventually, there were two governors involved: Governor Blood of New Hampshire and Governor Saltwell of Massachusetts. Edith North Rogers, who was our representative from my district back in Massachusetts was fabulous. She came up several times, she donated to the reward, and she called in everybody. She called Basil O'Connell in Washington, who was the head of the Red Cross at the time. And he took all of his staff from Massachusetts and New Hampshire and sent them there and so forth. But there were sheriffs, CCC, fire departments, thousands from Lowell as volunteers, plus local volunteers. Army men uh, at the time, enlisted men, the Red Cross, uh, pilot and Wiley APT who had his own airplane, who volunteered to fly over, and so so forth. And one of the individuals who was uh, a volunteer, his name was uh, Clyde Simpson, Stimson, and he said, "I have a phone. It's about seven miles from here. And what are your wife and you going to do tonight?" And he said, well, we don't know. He said, well, come come with me. And so he housed my mother and father and then me for a while, for two weeks. And one morning when it was very frosty, my father got up early, looked out the bathroom window, and he was on the top of my father's car wiping the frost off so he wouldn't feel bad. Wow. But the, the kind of backing that we got at the time, and it just give you an idea, there were army kitchens there. There were Red Cross canteens. There were local fire department kitchens, ladies' auxiliary kitchens, the CCC kitchens, and so forth, just to feed the people. The Red Cross, in one day, doled out five thousand cups of coffee, as this thing really began to grow and and grow. And the military was there, and they brought in all kinds of things. They had miners' lamps. They brought in the big spotlights that would. There were five. Th- 500,000 candle power, sure. so that you could put them on at night so the searchers could find their way back. He also brought in a speaking truck, mm-hmm. you know, a loudspeaker truck. So my mother and my father could drive through. Uh, they drove the trucks calling out, you know, Pammy, this is dad. You know, if you hear, to hear people around you, go to them and help you and so forth. I guess it was heart-wrenching. For anybody who just listened to the voice, you know, he spoke so much he could hardly speak.
1: So where were you while this was going on?
2: Now, that's an interesting point because it was a volunteer. We didn't even know who he was uh, at that first night. And he volunteered to drive my grandparents and me back to Massachusetts. And he did. He dropped off my grandfather-in-law and he dropped off my grandmother and me in Dunstable. I actually went back to school. Wow. At the time. Right? It was a three-room schoolhouse. You wait for the bus, you know, and go up and so forth.
1: And when you went back to school, was everyone aware of what had happened?
2: They were aware of it. They had no idea, as we did not, that it was going to become such a big deal. Right. And so I, I think what the, the most fascinating thing to me was a number of people that responded and so forth and, and uh, all of the things that they, that they did. Now, what I'd like to do is kind uh, of read a little bit to you, if you don't mind, because I have a lot of this stuff written out.
1: Sure? We'd love it. <laughs> and uh,
2: it, it talks about, you know, the people coming in in the CCC, and they were setting up uh, they've set up tents. They put up a tent city, you know and, and the whole area there where she was lost, like that little park, became a, a living, breathing city. They had uh, police officers to screen the people coming in. They had uh, somebody assigned to the one spigot of water there to make sure that didn't get it contaminated and so forth. And this just kept growing and growing and became, again, a bigger and bigger city. And it, it rained almost every single day. And they would get Dozens and dozens of false leads. You know, for example, somebody said, you know, there's an ex-con up here, and he's known for molesting children. You know, I saw him in the area. Well, the police would go, Massachusetts police and New Hampshire. They finally caught the guy actually in the streets in Boston, and he had a perfectly good alibi. But then they found out there's another guy up here, and he's walking around, and he's he's a former con. So they police brought him in and so forth. And then people would come in and contact and say, I saw a little girl. Down by the side of the road the other evening, playing and so forth. Well, they moved the whole search over there, and they kept getting these leads that were wrong, and they were taking all of the a lot of the searching to across the street. And my mother and father both insisted. I know Pam. They said she would look for help if she got to the road, so she didn't just cross the street, so forth. But they had. The army in there and the sheriffs and everything, they had the right to search every house within four miles. And they had airplanes going up above and anything that wasn't recorded. they got. In, and the military would go in, they'd have guns, loaded guns, and they would go into these abandoned places and dig everything up and so forth. And they would send a mile of men through the woods, lined up on the side of the road at fingertip length. And go right up straight through the woods, so forth. But they had again all kinds of misleads. There was one other woman who gave them a, a lead and so forth. And she they said, okay, we'll meet you in the in the hotel in the center of town. Little did she know, but every single man in that room was an undercover policeman. <laughs> <laughs> but it proved out she was wrong, so forth. But people would come and volunteer, you know, a couple of guys came in and said, We have a blind greyhound that can find anything. Course, they were inebriated so they kind of gave them a map and said go ahead uh, hours later they said they were down the road smoke coming out from under the dog where they were dragging the dog along and they were seven miles in the wrong direction but they they did have some funny things happen they had people up as high as 67 to 72 years of age looking there was a guy named fox from uh, Albert Fox, from Drake at Mass. He was a farmer, he's 67. And then there was another guy, there was a Boy Scout, he was 15 years old, okay? And there was one guy that I think he was a Boy Scout and he cut his knee, you know, chopping through the underbrush. The underbrush was so thick, you couldn't get through it. They were finding traps that had been there for 100 years. Wow. From the, 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 even the trappers lost them up there and the people who lived on the other side of this territory they covered about ten thousand acres of land they said there were animals running through their yards (laughs) and experiment because there was so much activity on the other side of that mountain you know these kind of things were happening all the time one guy i know had a heart attack and he came from lowell i think my father took care of him until he died wow because i remember Going to the tenements, which my father did on holidays and bringing armloads of groceries and so forth, and going into this guy's apartment and seeing the two little girls sitting at the table having a cupcake for Christmas and so forth. And my father would leave stuff. Eventually, we did get over 5,000 letters, and uh, it took my mother. And her two sisters and her best friend over a year and a half to answer those because they answered a lot of the letters. There were 5,000 letters, but the 350 packages with books and dolls and cutouts, mm-hmm. everything else, which my mother and father donated completely to the or- orphanages in all. Sure. But I think probably what we should get into this is what happened the final day.
1: Sure. So. Why don't you say how many days had gone by? I uh, wish also mentioned that it was below freezing multiple nights and raining.
2: Yes. As I said, she had uh, a bib overalls on corduroy. She had, she had sandals with a strap across and, and socks, two blue ribbons in her hair, period. Mm-hmm. It went down to 21 degrees. That's not a frost. That's freezing. Sure. Deep freeze. The first, Night out, it got very cold. The second night out, it went to twenty-one degrees, and that's when everybody who knew the woods began to panic, because they said, "The way she's dressed, she could never survive." Mm-hmm. And what she did, by the way, in retrospect, she would cover herself with leaves at night, and then she would, because she couldn't walk after it, probably the second night, because her feet froze. Wow. Okay, and uh, when they found her. I can go through that in a little more detail here, okay?
1: Sure. Whatever direction you want to take it is fine.
2: Okay. Well, again, remember it rained, you know, almost every day. And uh, you had these dozens and dozens of organizations. And eventually, the estimate was about 6,000 people got involved in this search. Mm -hmm. And last weekend, they knew they were going to get a huge influx of people. So I'm gonna to read to you that final Monday. Uh, Monday, 6 October, 1941 it broke as a clear and mild day. At daybreak, the New Hampshire State game warden, Slim Baker, Major Franklin Spencer, Mr. Sanborn, Mr. Hollingworth, and two other searchers went straight to the spot where the footprints were found. The day before they found her footprints, which was the first indication that she even was in the woods, this was the first tangible evidence to date that she was or had been in the woods at all. The ground was frozen. Slim Baker and Mr. Hollingworth crawled in on their hands and knees and lifted each twig off the prints one at a time. Mr. B- Baker examined the prints very carefully, then told the size of the shoe and the weight of the child, he even estimated the height of the child, because the prints led directly into a nearby tree with broken branches which the person had evidently run into during the night. Later, it was found that this was the only time she had moved after dark. The entire remaining crew of close to 500 men could now direct, be directed into that general area. The searchers worked back and forth through the footprint area with amazing speed and efficiency, despite extremely tough going. The underfooting was very poor and even treacherous due to the many days of heavy rain. But the early morning optimism wore slowly off as the search seemed to settle down into the same old routine with no more clues to inspire. As each crew reported in after covering their assignment, they were immediately sent again in the hope of covering all the ground possible before nightfall. Soon the sun began to sink lower and lower as the late afternoon shadows reflected on the faces of every man. Some gathered about in small groups as they returned to discuss whether or not they should advise Mr. Hollingworth to stop driving himself to death. But the large majority had decided to remain as long as they possibly could. The CCC boys were starting to put wooden floors in their tents in the case case they had to remain far into the cold weather. The Forest Service personnel The conservation officers and some civil authorities had come to the unanimous decision that they would stick with Joe to the end no matter what. In fact, they all arranged to use up all their vacation time, sick leave and holidays put together if ordered off the job. And if that didn't prove to be enough, those that did not have families decided to quit their jobs if necessary. How can you lose with, you know, morale like that? Meanwhile, far up Middle Cessna Mountain, about two and a half miles from camp, a group of 85 men were then heading back towards camp. This group of CCC enrollees were under the direct supervision of District Ranger Charles Mead and Forest Guard Will Randall, Howard Bretter, Wilbur Thompson, T.J. Ramazza, and William Mattson. The group was following along a trail parallel to Brook. The boys were shouting the child's name, talking, and generally making quite a bit of noise. Braden Meade blew his whistle, stopped the group, and stated that if the child was alive, she might yell, but they would not be able to hear her. He then asked to have one minute of silence. Quiet reigned for about 15 seconds, and then they suddenly heard, ooh, woo. Everyone went almost berserk as they tore into the bushes. Matson and Mamaza after about a five-minute frantic search, ran down to the bank of the stream. There on the opposite side, on her hands and knees, getting ready to crawl through the water towards the sounds, was what they'd been searching for over the past eight days and nights. The time was exactly 5.05 p.m. on October 6, 1941. One of the men asked her who she was, to which he responded, Pammy, and what's your daddy's name? Joe. And I've been lost since Sunday. Now, immediately when they radioed that back, back to the base camp, the whole place was thrown into pandemonium. As soon as the announcement came over the loudest speaker system, everybody yelled and shouted and whistled, and shook hands and cried and prayed and hugged each other. There were now just two big questions. How was she and where was Mr. Hollingworth? Mr. Hollingworth was off in the woods with another search unit. When the news hit the base camp, Robert Toulouse, the Forest Service radio dispatcher, radioed quickly to this unit. Calling Joe E.H., is Joe E.H. with you? Yes. Get this clear. Return to camp. We have good news. Mr. Hollingworth darted so quickly down the trail that no one in the group would even come close to keeping up with him. As yet, he did not know whether she was hurt badly or not. In fact, no one in the base had any idea. When he arrived at the camp, Major Spencer had a command car and driver all ready to pull out. Major Spencer, Mr. Hollingworth, and the driver tore down the road and right up the middle sister trail with a four-wheel drive pulling the extremely maneuverable vehicle. They passed scores of cheering men who stepped off the trail to let the car pass. Within 10 or 15 minutes, they reached the rescue crew, and Mr. Hollingworth jumped out picked up his little girl from a makeshift stretcher that the boys had made from birch trees and their jackets. Hi, Pam. Hi, Dad. Were you scared? And she said, no. I knew you'd find me, Daddy. With that answer, Mr. Holmworth lost all the horror of the entire event. And then it went into a pandemonium of celebration. I can imagine. And and my father insisted on having everybody lined up and shaking their hand personally. And uh, he got together with all the Lowell volunteers and said, now all of you got to stay sober because this is going to be wild here tonight. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of, you know, celebration and so forth. And the next day it it was all silent. There was very silent. They just quietly kind of folded their tents and they said, The the word at the time was they figured they'd experienced a miracle and so forth. But back in the Memorial Hospital, the news was released to her condition. She had two frozen feet, a frostbitten nose, scurvy around the mouth, and had dropped from 45 to 28 pounds. She refused to let her mother leave her side and insisted on having a light of some kind burning in the room at all times. In her sleep, she would wave her hands over her head as if pushing branches from her path. The doctors agreed to wait 24 hours to determine if her left foot had any life left in it. When Pam was found, her sneakers had to be cut off because both feet had swollen so badly. Her right foot was a puffed up mass of brown flesh with some blisters measuring an inch high and an inch and a half across in diameter. The toes could not be distinguished on either foot. The left foot was swollen even larger than the right, and it was a very dark, almost black color. Fortunately, after the 24 hours were up, Pam could, quote, wiggle her toes for her daddy. This proved that there was enough life left to in both feet to eliminate the chance of amputation. And after that, another few, you know, scratches and scars. She was in remarkable Good physical condition, and in high spirits, she wanted an ice cream soda and you know and scrambled eggs. Of course, they couldn't give her anything but broth for for quite a while.
1: Were you there at that point, or was it still a few days before you got? The-
2: yes, I was. I was shipped back immediately. Okay. So I was with my father all the time at the end. For example, we were on the stimp- at the Stimson's house one night, and the whole front yard was full of reporters. And they said they demanded that they get a chance to take her, take pictures. And they also demanded that they get to interview her. And my father said, absolutely not. And they said, well, okay, we're going to claim this was a hoax. And you did it so you could make money. And they had letters from different people saying that probably is what happened. You couldn't have lived. Well, he had letters also from the commanding officer and from the from the hospital and everything else. So he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. You elect one person to take a picture, one person to take a picture, no interviews. And I'll meet with you twice a day indefinitely at the hotel for briefings, which he did. And they let this one guy in. I even remember his name. And he took that famous picture of her in the bed and so forth. And uh, my my mother, uh, you know, my father called my mother immediately when he got back to base camp. She was back in Lowell, Massachusetts. She was so struck by the news, she handed the phone to my aunt to verify it. So a friend called the Lowell police. The Lowell police came over and gave them an escort out of the city and then telegraphed all the way up to North Conway that she's coming. So in every town, they police waved them through. Wow! Uh, So they went out, state police, and everything, they brought them through and so forth but uh, interesting thing after that a lot of uh, a lot of things began to happen you know for example my father was approached uh, by people in Hollywood Shirley Temple so forth to make Pamela books and cutouts and all these kinds of things you know this was during the depression so remember that money was a big deal at that time I think the reward got up to like $2,500 which was probably a year's pay for most of the people sure. who were out looking and so forth. And so my father he had all this, you know, inundation of, of offers. So he went to my mother and he said, um, I had all these offers, you know, we can make a lot of money. And she said, what did we pray for? And he said, to get her back alive. And she said, well, what did we get? And he said just that, and he went out and turned it all down. They never got a dime, uh, the whole thing. They never had to pay for anything. They couldn't have it anyway. So that you know kind of ended that. And actually, in my mind, I think really the most, of course, Pam was the key person in this, and that was that's the big deal. But my father, um, in looking back, was unbelievable in his commitment and leadership and getting these people committed to where they were putting, you know, giving up their jobs and putting, you know, fireplaces, not fireplaces, but stoves in the tents. And stuff. they would stay. They were going to stay with her regardless and so forth. It was that was amazing. Another very key person with Edith Norris Rogers. Mm-hmm. She read it into congressional record, of course, and so forth, and it was considered then certainly in the history of New Hampshire, the, the most amazing search with the outcome in the history, uh, probably one of the most because a lot of these end up, yeah, they find the person, but usually they're deceased, this kind of thing.
1: do you think there was any discussion among your parents that maybe she didn't survive?
2: no, I would they were very open with me we'd have we had a very we had a great family. We talked to each other. Okay. Well, my my mother, my grandfather died, leaving my grandmother with the three girls under ten, uh, broke, and my grandmother had to work in the mills and the waitress on weekends. And my so my my mother actually raised her two younger siblings because she so she was unusually, you know, mature. Okay. For her age and so forth. You now, maybe if they even had an inkling of it, they didn't talk to each other about it. And I, I don't think, I know my father wouldn't allow the thought in his head. So, I, my answer to that would be I don't think so. Okay. I have no evidence of that at all.
1: Yeah, because uh, if you read the press accounts of the time, a lot of experts were saying too many days had gone by. It was oh, yeah. too cold, too wet. There's no way a girl. Without, you know, without much in the way of clothing, protective clothing could survive, but they make it clear in the press reports that your dad was like, let's keep going, let's keep going, let's keep yeah. going.
2: Well, I remember one incident, there was a, an older retired sheriff up there, and he got to talk to my father. He said, we got to get bird dogs in here because they can smell human dying, flesh, dead flesh. And my father turned and said, you know, I feel sorry for you. We're going to find her. She's going to be alive. So he wouldn't the thought never entered his mind. Mm-hmm. You know, he was that kind of a person, you know. When the city of Lowell had a war borne drive to buy a destroyer, he'd be in charge, they'd buy two. He was he, he was the president of the community chest, you know, and so forth. He was he was a treasurer and president and treasurer for 25 years of the Lions Club, you know. He was a very committed. Uh, civic leader mm-hmm. very committed and so I think that's one of the reasons that he had that kind of backing you know they saw him they say Joe's been Tom Clayton who was a broadcaster said you know Joe's given a lot to this city we need to help him out that kind of thing that actually received an enormous amount of coverage at that time and I think Without any question, what knocked it off the front page was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. Because we still had reporters hanging around the house and things like that until all of a sudden the war took over.
1: One thing uh, that the press did focus on was that your dad made a decision, your parents made a decision to move her out of the local hospital in Conway and take her back to Lowell. So, can you expand a little bit on that?
2: Yes, she was in the Memorial Hospital in uh, North Conway when they took her. Actually, when remember they came down the mountain on the Jeep with my father holding her. He passed her to my uncle. He said, you go to the hospital with her. I've got to call my wife, but Blanche, which he did. And uh, so she was in the hospital there. And again, we can see there are a lot of reporters from all Pathé News. RKO owners, you know, I'd run into kids at school and say, oh, I saw you in the movie, chef's so like you know, something. <laughs> and uh, this, it was a huge amount of press. So when she got to the point where she was, the feet were okay, they knew they were going to save the feet. We decided, or my family decided, of course, to move her from North Conway to Lowell General Hospital, which is where we came from. Now, the question was, how do you get her out of there without getting inundated with the, the front lawn covered with, I say, you no know, arcane, you know, everybody else out there. Mm-hmm. So what we did was, uh, what they did, is sneak her down into the cellar and then get her to a back door that nobody really paid attention to, put her on the floor, back floor, and put a blanket over her in the car and then just drive off. Wow! And my father left a letter to be read by the chief. We had you know, the highest ranking person at the hospital to all of them explaining what they did, and why they do it. You know, if you this was your child, you do the same thing, this kind of thing and so forth. But he said, don't read it until we've had an hour's head start.
0: <laughs> sure.
2: But then they showed up, of course, at the hospital, you know, they were there and so forth. And actually. When the war broke out, this was, uh, I can't remember exactly how many months it was after Pearl Harbor. The Treasury Department came out to Dunstable with all of their paraphernalia and everything to have her make a pitch for buying war stamps. Yeah. So it was still there.
1: And and your parents still had no interest in having her do that then?
2: That they just, they say, sure, she could do that. Oh, okay. For the the war effort. She'd do it all dressed up and say, buy war stamps or something like
0: that. <laughs> sure. Uh,
1: I guess I should ask, did she have any long-term effects of this? I mean.
2: That's another excellent question. And the answer is really surprisingly no, except for the fact that her favorite vacation place was on a Cape. And the mountains were not a favorite place to go for a vacation, although she didn't fear them. She didn't fear anything and so forth, but she kind of liked, she might've liked it anyway. Okay. So I would, I assume that maybe subconsciously she said, well, I'd rather go to the ocean than go to the mountains.
1: Did your family ever go back there afterward or they just stayed away?
2: That's a very interesting question because I don't think even Pam was avoiding it. The irony of our family was that my very close cousins my you know my mother's um sister two of the tightest sisters ever known in my life Mm -hmm. uh my cousin was in line to become you know one of the executives at new england telephone okay they'd already moved him to boston and you know groom him he was bored so he sold everything his father almost had apoplexy because he was a depression guy and he went up to north conway and he got a bottle gas company and a Sears Roebuck franchise, met a woman out skiing. They fell in love. They got married, sent us a postcard, were married, and went on to be incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. Her son is, was the strength and conditioning coach for the Boston Bruins. He's now head of the Bruins Foundation and so <laughs> forth. And, so, and they're in North Conway. Wow. And you look out of, he just put a couple of apartment buildings there. And it, he owns, a, my cousin still owns a lot up there. And there's Mount Shakarawa. Wow. Right there. And I can say, that's where she was found. I can point to it.
1: Her. This is going to sound like the craziest question. But when I was done with the story, there was a, a little mention that her her shoes were in a museum. And then it was sold off. Do you know what happened to those shoes? That's all. It sounds it's like the craziest question. That's
2: a great question because um, I.H. Morris owned a shoe uh, store business and his son and uh, the son's wife were very good friends of my mother and my father. And he was a big game hunter. And so he wanted to build this museum with all of the things that he had collected when he mm-hmm. was a big game hunter. Like he had a a solid gold door knocker that he got from the, the king of Siam, you know, at the time, you know, now yeah. Thailand, and so forth. And he wanted uh, her sneakers, you know, the sandals, the sandals, or sure. cut off her feet and put them under glass, and so forth. And so they were there, um, you know, for years. And I read in the paper one day because I'm into the antique and uh, fine arts business that there was going to be an auction up there. And I say, oh, sure, I know that. I've been up there, you know, and so forth. Something happened and I couldn't make it to that auction. So they were sold at the auction. I don't know where they went.
1: Yeah, that's a shame. It'd be, uh, when I was all done doing my research, for some reason, that one little question, what happened to those shoes? It just kind of stuck out in my mind, you know?
2: I think, they, I, think I still have the corduroy, uh overall. Wow. Uh, They're worn up at the knees, and I think so. And I I still have the letters, by the way.
1: Oh, I didn't realize that. I
2: have a great big container full of, it's almost half full of letters. You know, so forth.
1: That's incredible. I just kind of assume they'd be gone.
2: No, I have them. They're in my garage, a heated garage. But uh, my wife says, what are you hanging on to those for? I said, I don't know. But, you know, three-cent stamps, you know, and so forth. And some of these, you know, letters were amazing. This a package came and it had a Hershey bar in it and, and a, an orange that was pretty well rotted by it got to a time to us. And it says, for the little girl who had no food. <laughs> and it it was as humble as that all the way to a big, beautiful, you know, doll or something like that. I remember that first night when I was up there after she was found, the post office called said, please, Mr. Hallnery, they've got to come down here and get these packages. This was like a couple of days. And so we drove down. And as I told you, it was a Chevy sedan, four-door with a big back seat and a trunk, packed full.
1: And cars were big back then.
2: They were big. And there was nothing. I mean, The trunk was full. The back seat was full. They were on my lap and so forth. And they just kept coming. As a matter of fact, I just got a notification from uh, Smith College that one of Pam's surviving members of her class had donated money in her name for their alumni drive. Wow. And uh, there used to be two of them. And I think one of them is deceased now. She was an interesting, very, very charismatic. She had electric blue eyes and she could walk into the Dulles party in New York and immediately would come alive. And she had friends that would be friends forever. So wherever she left, she always carried these, you know, friends with her. So she was very, very, very popular. The question: I always asked it. Did she never get married? And I always said, well, she had more proposals than anybody east of the Mississippi, <laughs> but she was very picky. <laughs> and she would think, well, this guy drinks too much, you know, or something like that. Right. And, and but uh, she did date some. She had, one of her boyfriends was from um, Basel, Switzerland. You know, he was about six foot seven or eight, and his uh, he had a Ph.D. in optical physics. I remember that. And his father was the head of the communications for the Swiss Army when Hitler was going to invade. And guess who his father's roommate was when he was a young man in Paris? Picasso.
1: Wow. <laughs> so the house
2: is filled with Picasso's and Monet's. <laughs> but my mother and sister went over to visit them. This is after my father died. My father died at 58 from the acute coronary thrombosis, smoker, a heavy smoker. My sister died at 54, but she was a big smoker also. But uh, they went over to my mother, my sister took uh, my mother and went for a little tour of Europe because my sister majored in Italian when she was at uh, Smith College, lived a junior year and worked, went to the University of Florence. She could speak perfect Italian. And uh, they were over there at the house. And the shortest member of the family was 5'11", I think, the mother. Yeah, all the counters were big up. My mother was 5'4". She said, it was like working with your fingers up in the air all the time so forth.
1: So she studied Italian. What did she do with her life once uh, she became an adult?
2: Actually, she was a really terrific act- actress. She actually went to New York with the idea of becoming an actress. But when mm. she found out what you had to do in that business as a woman to succeed, she wouldn't have anything to do with that. Sure. She said she became the editorial director of the Arthritis Foundation, corporate communications director of Lane Bryant, first female. Wow. And she they used to give out awards like 50,000 to several people every year, you know, for doing great things. And she would go mm-hmm. and sit with the person two or three days and then write the articles on that. Uh, she was vice president for creative services for the Cancer Society, which she was the first female vice president of the American Cancer Society. Wow. And Communications director of the United States Committee for the United Nations Children's mm-hmm. Fund. So she spent about half her life in the for-profit side and the other half on the uh, um, profit side. Wow. And the head of the UN at the time, we knew, and he was a single guy, and he would have her go as his escort a lot when they had big affairs because she spoke perfect Italian.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. She was a very successful New Yorker and was just getting interested in retiring she was down at our we bought a house together for our mother on the cape and um the day before she was going to leave to drive back to florida she died and uh, she had an enlarged heart and again from probably from the smoking uh it was uh it was an absolute stunner she died actually before our mother did so um it was really tough for my mother
1: yeah i can imagine
2: my mother died about a year later.
1: Now, how old were you when your dad passed?
2: My twenties. Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly how old it was. Nineteen sixty, I believe, it was when he died. But it was an absolute shock. He was driving my mother and my uh, grandmother, my mother's mother, and my cousin's grandmother for ice cream. For ice cream, and he suddenly said, "Blanche." I'm going blind. Take the wheel. She reached over and grabbed the wheel and brought the car over. And he had an acute coronary thrombosis. right there. Mm. I mean, if you have to go, that's the way to go. But it was—he's still very young. He you looked great.
1: So I also wanted to ask you. Uh, you had told me there was a Gene Autry story. So I want to tell about that.
2: Oh, that's a great story. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> you know, uh, this was um, probably November after she was found. And she was lost, of course, September into November. And we were back in Dunstable and we were she was home. Okay, so we were back home and so forth. And my father got a call out of the blue and say, hello, Mr. Hollingworth, my name's Gene Autry. And everybody knew who Gene Autry was at that time. And maybe even still do, it's surprising. But he said, I would like to come and see the little girl who would meet the little girl who was lost. And now this is in California, you know, and we're on the East Coast. They tell you, they'll show you the coverage this was getting. And so my father said, OK, but he was very leery. He thought it was a publicity stunt. So he said, I'll meet you when you come into Boston and you can follow me back to Dunstable. So they flew in and Archery with one of his buddy Jimmy Wakely, who was also a great musician at the time, um, they came and my father said, okay, just follow me. And he drove them all over the place through <laughs> the town to make sure nobody was falling, and nobody was. So he pulled into the yard and I was there and Pam was there. My mother had her all dressed up. And he came in. And they were two of the nicest men I have ever met in the, my life. Autry was fabulous, and uh, he brought in a stack of records, probably a foot and a half high, of every one he'd ever made, and he was known as the singing cowboy, Mm -hmm. you know, and he said, "Uh, would you like me to sing for you, and she said yes, and uh, really, she's five, and he said, what would you like me to sing, he said, you are my sunshine, so he said okay, and he was sitting on the couch, he got his guitar out, and and he said, why don't you join me, So they both sang together, you are my sunshine, (laughs) and so forth. It was absolutely wonderful. And then when he was leaving, he turned and he said to my father and to my mother and to Pam and to me, he said, my next rodeo in Boston, and he had a big one every year in Boston, you and your mother and your your father and your your brother are going to be my guests. And you're going to sit in my box in Boston at Boston Garden. I'll send you the tickets. So they left. Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, 1946. We get a letter through the mail from Gene Autry with four box seats. Wow. And we went to that, of course, we went down there and he was fabulous, came out to meet us, took took us to his dressing, dressing room, let her sit on the back of his horse, you know, Ollie. He was just great, and uh, it was an event I never will forget in my life. And he didn't make one single move to get publicity out there—no photographers, hmm. no reporters, nothing. So I always I have huge respect for that man. And as you probably know, uh, I, I was reading an interview with him years and years ago when he was in his prime. And he said, well, I'm not a very good singer and I'm not a very good actor, but I know one in numbers. And he was eventually one of the 400 wealthiest people in America.
1: Pretty incredible uh and you know uh today he's not very well remembered probably he's best remembered for his christmas songs like you know rudolph the red Nose yes. reindeer and so on
2: yeah, that, that keeps every year
1: yeah uh, they always say if, if you're going to record a hit song it should be a christmas song because it you know e- every year you'll get royalties from it that's right um but yeah uh, i mean it, it he was a superstar in his day oh yes so it's yeah it's it's amazing that he'd go out of his way and and you know he, he sees your sister before the war and then five years later, the war is over and he still remembers her and invites the family.
2: He remembered that, that I, we were flabbergasted.
1: Now, did you, did the family ever hear from him after that? Or was that the last time?
2: No, that was it. Mm-hmm. That was it. Well, we made no effort either. I mean, you know, it was wonderful and everything else, but we didn't want to bother him. Sure. And I think he, he he recognized we were just, you know, normal people. And he was he saw himself as kind of like a normal guy. Mm-hmm. And so we will just go on with our lives. This has been great, but it's over.
1: So um, I don't have many more questions. I do, I do have one. Did anyone ever blame you? I mean, you went with your sister and you left her by the side of the creek and then she got lost in the woods. Did anyone ever
2: blame you? Not one single bit. As, as I was saying, you know, we were very confident. we we're, were not afraid of the woods and everything else. He wasn't worried about
0: mm-hmm.
2: her and the brook and everything else because he knew it was. he checked it out and it was very shallow, that kind of thing. But he was concerned that, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't leave her there. Just go and get her. This, this is all maybe 50 yards. Right. Yeah. And so evidently what we figured out later is she went up the brook and she cut up a little too soon. And so there was some brush there, and she probably worked within walked within 10, 15 feet of where the family was. Right. They were all quiet. Because it was after dinner, you know, and they're reading newspapers and things like that. She just walked by. Wow. Ironically, the two people who went in that direction to look with my mother and me. And uh, we just didn't go far enough.
1: As the years went on after this, did she think about it or is it just something she put out of her mind? What do you think?
2: I would say that uh, it did not bother her. Okay? We could talk about it. We could ask questions, um, which we didn't do very much anyway because it was... Done, and so forth. It was a, a super happy process. A very difficult thing for my parents to go through, but every time it came up, you know. For example, here's something from the Boston Herald. This was the uh, 25th anniversary, and this was she it says 6,100 found Pam 25 years ago, and then they have the picture here of my father, Pam, and my mother. After she got out of the hospital, and that's her uh, in New York City when she twenty five years later. These things would come out. She'd be interviewed and be talked to, and she was very calm and just factual. And she wasn't scarred by it. If that's what your point is.
1: Yeah, it's just an amazing story. Uh, yeah, because I read, uh, I do come across lots of these stories because I'm always looking through old newspapers and stuff. And most of the time, they don't end
2: well. They die. They're dead.
1: And I mentioned I mentioned this to you uh, when we spoke last week. Is that I kind of came into the story in the middle. I just kind of stumbled across it, and I didn't expect her to survive. I was just kind of pulling all the information together. It's like, wow, she lived. You know, it, it was not what I expected to
2: happen. Well, this is why it, you have the picture of me reading the Lawl Sun. Sure, six inch headlines.
1: Yeah, I have that on my website, yeah.
2: Yeah, and um, I I think that everybody was shocked that not only found her, but she was alive, Mm -hmm. and that she recovered, you know, for eight days and eight nights, down to 21 degrees, no food, but she stayed near the brook, which saved her life, because you can't survive very long without water.
1: Yeah, I I just want to make an observation, Uh, you're 91 years old, is that correct? That's correct. You were nine years old when this happened. And I noticed as you read the account of your sister's rescue, uh, when she was found, when your dad uh, was notified. And now just now you still get kind of, you know, you can see your throat tighten up. It's, it's still emotional to you.
2: Oh, yes. Uh, I'll tell you something interesting. And I may have told you before, but I've taught a lot of classes, you know, and I've taught uh, one class I taught, I think or taught 30 times at Harvard. It was very, very popular class. We got the, you know, Distinguished Teaching Award and everything else in it and produced some amazing people like the president of Columbia, South America. You never knew it was in the classes in those particular days. And at the end, when my my whole staff would do their presentations and then I just get up instead of giving a speech, which they all knew I could do that by this time. Uh, I just said, I want to read something to you. And that whole room of up to ninety people, sometime from every culture you can imagine, all over the world, and with you know some PhDs, some doctors and researchers, not everybody, but complete spread of the whole human spectrum at that particular time, and that room would become dead silent until I finished, and it was still silent when I stopped. I mean, they were just like as wrapped up in that as if they were in the search, just reading the last half of the final, you know, chapter and so forth. And everyone that talked to me said that's the most incredible humanistic story I've ever heard, regardless of where they came from.
1: Yeah, It's an incredible, incredible story. I, uh, I have to say, when I was done writing it, I was thinking this would make a great movie, you know,
2: make a great book. Yeah. Because movies, they mess them up, as you know. Sure. (laughs) But I would say, you know, I've chastised myself for years that I haven't, you know, I'm good at reading books and I'm good at editing other people's stuff. For me to have the patience and sit down and do that kind of concentrated work is just not my kind of thing.
1: Well, Ted, I just want to thank you for being so generous in telling this story. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Of all the podcasts, the stories I've written in the 30-plus years I've been doing it, it's one of my favorites. And I'm just so happy you're willing to come on and share your telling of it, to share it with my audience. Uh, and I do appreciate uh, you doing that. So thanks.
2: Thank you very much, Steve. I have thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'm delighted to see that you've kept that, I think, a great story alive. You're
1: very welcome. Well, I guess we should say goodbye. So it's say goodbye. Bye.
2: Goodbye. Ciao.
1: Well, I do hope you enjoyed listening to my interview with Ted Hollingworth. Uh, I should tell you that I spoke with him for about four hours over two different days, and I enjoyed every single moment of it. I should mention that my telling differs from what Ted and I just discussed. Not that the facts are any different, but uh, I focus more on the day-to-day events that led up to her rescue. So if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, I'll remind you again, it was episode number 155, and I titled it Lost in the Mountains. If you have enjoyed this episode or the podcast in general, I would appreciate it if you could share it with someone. You know, That can be through Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, or like, I guess that's X now, <laughs> or by whatever means you think will help grow my audience. Anything you can do to help spread the word would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Just a reminder you can find the Useless Information Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to subscribe. The Useless Information Podcast is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, so be sure to visit airwavemedia.com, and there you will find a curated selection of some of the best podcasts, not just in history, but also in science, wellness, education, and the arts. As always, thanks for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye.